In the final section of this little piece on the importance of the believer's body, we see Paul do three more things for the Corinthians, or really to the Corinthians. There was a, this is a five-point message. I had to break it up. I had to give you two last week. I give you three this week. And I would say this is the point now where he really turns up the heat, where he really presses upon them the truth and reality of the importance of our bodies. He really didn't get to that in the last two points, but he does now. And so that's what we'll be looking at today. If you guys could take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians, we'll be in the rest of the chapter, chapter 6, 15 to 20. So we can pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our third point. Our first slide will go up. I still got the other two points on there because they're great reminders of where we're going or where we've been. But the third point that Paul seeks to make to them is this, or the third thing that he does to them, I should say, is that he corrects them for thinking it's okay to use their bodies for carnal purposes. He just flat out issues a correction on this subject. And we see this in verses 15 to 17. I'd like to start at 15a. I've divided 15 in half because it, it, in two parts because it's just it's got some stuff here. 15a, this is what he says about, you know, correction. You, you're not supposed to use your bodies for this. He says this in 15a, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Stop right there. The first thing that we see Paul do here as we enter into this third point is he does what he always does. He is a master of this, and that is of remembrance. He, rem he reminds the Christians, the Corinthians, of what they are. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. This is one of the most effective, best ways to help Christians come back to where they should be, by remind not by just telling them what to do, because we still have an old man and old nature that wants to kick against that. But to take the Christian and look the Christian in the eyes and say, this is who you are. You need to remember who you are in Christ. Because I think that I need to be reminded of this personally every day because every day I forget. And this is the first thing that he does here as he transitions into this more heated argument. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. And this is a great help to confused Christians, to super immature Christians, and to even, dare I say, Christians who have somehow backslidden or they're backsliding, sliding back into the old patterns. He really is saying here, have you forgotten that your bodies are members of Christ? You're not living in a way that, that supports that. You're not living in a way that reflects that you as people are members of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're not living in a way that reflects that or emulates that. You're living in a way that contradicts that. I am telling you, and I am asking you this plain question, have you forgotten who you are in Christ? This is what he's saying. This is really the best way to go, I think, when it comes to correcting people. And I want you to notice his specific wording here. I think that if, if you, when you're reading the Bible and you're studying the Bible and you're preaching the Bible, if you just slow down and read carefully, you'll find things that you did not know were there. And they're right there before your eyes. I made two discoveries this week that were exhilarating. I, my wife and I went on an hour-long hour walk, and it's all I talked about. 
And I know she was thinking, I probably don't need to go to church because I just heard the sermon. <laughs> I said, oh, baby, you're hearing it again. Because the real sermon is coming on Sunday, honey. I just, sometimes you find these things and you're like, I just really want to talk about this. This is exhilarating. It's something that I did not know. It's something that I didn't see before. This is one of them, but it's smaller than the one that's coming. Notice the phrasing. Notice what he says. Very important that we notice what he's saying here. He does not say your bodies are members of the body of Christ. When we think of our membership, we think of us as being members of the body of Christ, of a church of the body of Christ. That's not what he says. And he does say that in other places. He does not say your bodies are members of the body of Christ. It is absolutely true, but that's not what he wrote here. He wrote your bodies are members of Christ, of Christ himself. Notice the distinction. He's not talking about the, the body of believers, the church, universal, or a small expression like here. He's talking about of Christ himself. You are members of your Christ, your Messiah. That's what Christ means. He is pointing to the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ, which happens to be one of the most fundamental teachings of the Apostle Paul. Peruse his other epistles and you will see this doctrine just about everywhere. To name a few spots where the doctrine appears, how about in Romans 8, 1 and 2? How about 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Galatians 2, 20, where he talks about Christ in me. That's the union. Philippians 3, 8 to 10. Colossians 2, 12 to 13. 2 Timothy 2, 11. I could go on and on and on. I think that this was Paul's favorite subject. The union that we have with Christ, being in Christ. Second to that would probably be the union we have with other brothers and sisters. That's the union with the church. This is something that he just presents over and over and over. I gave you one, two, three, four, five, six different epistles where we see it. We had, what, five, five more or so. We've got all his epistles. He probably said it. Every believer, and I would say true believer, because I think you have to distinguish that these days. Everyone thinks they're a believer. 86% of the country says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. So now we have to say true believer, not just believer. True Christian, not just Christian. But I would say that every true believer is a member of Christ, not just of the body, but of the head of the body. This means they are in union with him. And what is truly significant about this text or our text is that it shows that union with Christ involves the whole person, including the physical body. D.A. Carson wrote, no Christian could say, my body, for it is not the spirit but the whole person who is joined to Christ at conversion. The, the, the totality of who I am Body, soul, and spirit is all in Christ. It's all His. He's all mine and I'm all His. He owns me from head to toe. There's no part or quadrant or section that's outside of this. It's the whole person. This is what Paul is saying. You are members of Christ. 
This doctrine just obliterates Gnosticism. We talked about that last week a bit, which says the believer's body is not in any way connected to Christ. It's all about the soul. It doesn't have anything to do with the body. But the, the Bible teaches over and over and over that the whole person is connected in Christ or with Christ. This verse in particular. Look, you need to understand when God saves a man, he saves the whole man, not just his soul. He saves the soul at regeneration or the new birth. He saves the body at resurrection. Did you know that? Now you think in terms of redemption, that's a buyback. He bought the totality of who you are. So he owns the whole of you, but your salvation is parsed out. Your soul is saved. It's safe. Your spirit is new. It's safe. But your body, it's, it's been redeemed. It's been purchased but it hasn't been saved yet because it's going to become more and more decrepit and fall apart and have to deal with stuff. And at some point, it's going to go down into a grave, right? That doesn't sound like a body that's saved. It's not. It's a body that's still subjected to death. But when he returns, he will raise all of us up out of the ground, thus saving the body and giving us a new body. So when we think of salvation, we always say, well, we're saved. But biblically speaking, we are being saved. That's true biblical salvation. It is a process of being saved. And it is a process that cannot be foiled, cannot be stopped. Because the good thing, the good work that God began in us, he will truly bring or for sure bring to fruition or completion. He saves the soul at regeneration, that's when the spirit comes in and makes that spiritually dead man a new spiritual man who's alive. He saves the body at resurrection. At the resurrection, the entire man is saved. Soul, spirit, body, and his redemption is now totally, totally complete. There's nothing more to do. It's done. When we participate in communion, we are not merely reflecting on the cross work of Christ. We are and celebrating our union with Christ. The fact that, that we are in Christ and he is in us. The fact that as members, we are members of him himself, not just his body, the church. And this is why communion is for Christians only. To participate in communion without being in union with Christ is a grievous sin. It is to take it in an unholy, unworthy manner and to bring judgment on yourself. This is why we always warn people right before we do it. Scripturally speaking, participating in communion, which reflects the union, if you don't have the union, you participate in it, it's equivalent to profaning the blood of the covenant and trampling underfoot the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 29. That's not something that you want to do. The Corinthians, it's very baffling, but the Corinthians were okay with using their bodies for carnal purposes because they thought it wouldn't have any kind of impact on their union with Christ or their relationship with Christ. And they were wrong, wrong. Paul corrects them by describing how they and all Christians have a bodily union with Christ. 
Believers are in him and he is in believers. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Colossians 1.27, and then all the verses that I mentioned a moment ago, and there's so many more. Therefore, these bodies and what we do with them matters big time. That's the point. Paul illustrates this precise point in the next three lines. Graphically, another reason why I hit pause last week was because I didn't want to get into some of this subject matter with a bunch of rugrats in here. <laughs> After the service, mommy, what's a prostitute? <laughs> I'll tell you about that when you're 11. I mean, this is the language he uses. I'm not making this up. And I've been praying that I wouldn't deal with it lightly or make fun. Next point, or not next point, but he illustrates the point in the next three lines. I'll read them. It's 15b all the way through 17. He's illustrating the importance. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Wow. This, this is a, an extreme illustration. But it's very relevant to them. Like it had, it doesn't have as much meaning to us because prostitution isn't what it was then. In their day, it was big business and totally acceptable. And I think this is why he goes to it primarily. The illustration is exactly that. It's members of Christ joining with a prostitute in sexual immorality. It could be that people in this church were literally paying prostitutes for services. Such behavior was common among men in the Roman world. Corinth featured a massive temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love. It had a thousand temple prostitutes who entered the streets at night to hunt for customers, male or female. It had male prostitutes too. So contextually speaking, this would have hit home on these Corinthians. They weren't just thinking, why would he talk about prostitution? That's so old. No, that was very much the day. He is asking these Corinthians very plainly, would it be appropriate to take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute in fornication or adultery or sexual immorality? Would it be appropriate to do something like that? He even says, would it be appropriate for me to take you and to put you at the best little you-know-what in Texas? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Would it be appropriate for an apostle to say, go ahead and do that? Would that be okay? This is what he's saying. And what does he say in response to that, that question, that rhetorical question? You don't see a lot of exclamation points in Scripture, but right here you do. It's like a missile. Never. Missile! Never, never would you, never would I even dream of doing something like that. And never should you dream doing something 
See, prostitution may have been acceptable in the Greco-Roman in Greco-Roman society, but it was never acceptable in the ancient church, nor at any other point in church history. It's never been acceptable. Sexual immorality has just never been acceptable. Prostitution never been acceptable. D.A. Carson again, he says, prostitution uh, was always precluded in the church because of the unity any sexual act establishes between two people. He's saying that believers throughout the history of the church have rejected sexual immorality, have rejected prostitution and these sorts of sexual sins because they recognize the oneness that that kind of act creates. In other words, they refused to subject their bodies that were indwelled by God to this kind of sexual sin or perversion. What was the main deterrent for them? The main deterrent for them was Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ is in me, therefore I don't want to take him through something like that. That was the deterrent, and that is a good deterrent. What deterred them from such wickedness was their union with Christ. It's precisely what Paul is talking about here. You are members, not just of the church. Because I think as members of the church, that doesn't carry the weight. It carries weight. But if I go out and live frivolously and sin against the members of the church, not a good thing. But now if we're talking about how I'm in Christ and when I go out and do this, I'm sinning against him, there's more gravity, there's more weight, there's more substance there. That's why he's careful with his wording. Never should we even consider doing anything like this. Why? Because of Christ in me, our union with Christ. That's what he's saying. But the Corinthians seem to be absolutely clueless. Deer in, a head, in the headlight, just duh. I saw this yesterday when I was driving and this little dog, and it's, it's on Carpenter, it's like a highway, and this little dog was trying to get across the street, but he just kept running out in front of cars. And I, and, and I could see him up ahead, and I saw this dot running out, and I said, this poor little guy's going to get blasted. And he kept just barely missing the wheels of like two cars. And so by the time I got to him, I honked for like a mile, <laughs> trying to get him to leave. And, and then what did he do? He ran back to the edge of the street and went, I'm like, this guy's going to get killed. He's clueless. This is the Corinthians. Just clueless. Ready to run out in front of a Mack truck. To them, sexual immorality, I didn't even know if they would call it sexual immorality. It was just half the phrase, just sex. It's no big deal to them. Paul had to not only warn them to never join with a prostitute in sexual immorality, but he has to explain why. And that just seems so strange to me, especially with a church that's been around for almost two years. Why am I having to go over this with you? It's instinctual for a great many Christians. As soon as they get saved, they start to detect that some of the things they've been doing is wrong and maybe I ought to stop. And then what happens is they come to church and they hear a sermon and they go, whoa, I'll never do that again. These guys are two years old in the faith here and here they are going, it's all good. They're that little dog. It's just weird to me. But then it's really not because, you know, you study the word and you learn human nature and you say, eh, sadly it makes sense. 
In verse 16, he points them back to the very beginning, to Genesis 2.24, where it describes a husband and a wife leaving their parents' homes, cleaving together, becoming one flesh. And there's the union. It's not marriage that creates this oneness or one flesh. It's what married couples do. It's the consummation, you know, the, the joining together of two bodies becoming one flesh. If marriage was the thing itself, then why is he saying, he's, I mean, they're talking about sleeping with prostitutes that aren't their wives, and they're talking about a oneness and a union that's formed in that. It's not marriage that does it. It's what married couples do. And people that aren't married. You know, this is God's design for, for, for a man and a woman to come together in holy matrimony and, and to consummate and to join together and to become one flesh and, and then to, to, to keep doing that as a celebration of God's goodness to them and, and, and in a way to take joy in each other and these sorts of things. You know, and I realize there's things that happen to us and it makes it difficult. Again, I'm not talking about that. I'll talk about that more next week. But it, it's, it's meant for our good, and God designed it to be this way, this oneness that you would experience in a marriage. He designed it to be this way, so much so that he even put a hormone in women called oxytocin that is released during intimacy for the purpose of bonding them to their husbands. This is God's design. Now, I'm not trying to hammer you if it's not something that you can do. I'm not saying, oh, you're not living out God's design there are things that happen to our bodies. I'll, I'll talk about this more next week. I'm just saying that leaving the households and forming your own household and holy matrimony and coming together, this is his design. He even put chemistry in us that, that helps to forge that, thus proving his design. But these things are equally present during fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, adultery, and other types of sexual immorality. Things that cannot be seen are happening. Hormones, bonds, oneness. They're still present. They, they don't just exist in the context of a marriage. They exist in the context of consummation. Actually, not consummation, but just sex. And if a person is a Christian... They are using a body that Christ indwells for sexual immorality. They are creating a union with the prostitute or whoever they're with, not their wife, somebody else. They are creating a union with that gal or with that guy because gals do it too while being in union with Christ. Yikes! But it doesn't bother God at all when two married people do it. It's holy. That brings him joy. But when it's not done the way that he has prescribed in his word, it does not bring him joy. It brings judgment on you. And this is Paul's precise point, the idea of creating this union or having the union with this gal and with Christ simultaneously. This is what he talks about now. It's his, next, it's his precise point in the next line. After describing the, the oneness that results from joining with a prostitute in verse 16. He describes the oneness believers have with Christ in verse 17. He talks about union with her and then union with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
But I want you to notice, here's the thing that I discovered that really got me going and had me preaching as we were walking. I want you to notice the flesh-spirit distinction. There is a distinction in the text. You don't see this unless you slow down and pay attention. I didn't see it till the sermon was done. Rachel's like, I thought you were done. I was, but I just found something. And one day later, notice the flesh-spirit distinction. This will help us, but it doesn't free us from our responsibility. The man who sleeps with a prostitute becomes one in flesh with her. He just taught them that in verse 16. The man who trusts in the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. This is exactly what he says in verse 17. So you've got the union of flesh in 16, the union of spirit in 17. There's a distinction, friends. Sexual immorality makes a man and a woman one in flesh. Faith makes a man and God one in spirit. There is the distinction that he is making. And it is insanely important that we grasp this because it shows that God is never personally tainted by our sin. He can be in me but not tainted by what I do. Why? Because God does not indwell our flesh. Our flesh is evil, it's corrupt, it's disintegrating. Some of you are like, hallelujah, that's the problem. That's why I'm falling apart, right? It's disintegrating. You get old, you get moles, you get things. It just, it's falling apart. He does not indwell our flesh. He indwells our soul after making it new, after regeneration, after rebirthing it. And he makes it in that moment habitable for himself. And then he makes the soul his home which forms a spiritual union, John 14, 23. We become one spirit with him as he indwells our souls. The Puritan Henry Scogel wrote an incredible little book on this subject called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. You should read it. Talks about the distinction. Point being, since God indwells a newly created soul and not the flesh, he remains untouched by our sin. Thank God. But his reputation is still dirty because of the association with us. His reputation is attacked. What we do matters. If we go around proclaiming that I am a Christian, God has saved me, and then we're engaging in these sorts of things, it doesn't do anything positive for his reputation or name. It still matters what we do, even though, and I, I don't know if I would say God is protected because God is the one who protects people, but, but he is separated from sin. He is holy even while he's in us because he's in the soul that is new and enlivened and regenerated and all that. But, but what we do still matters because he's still, in a sense, not even in a sense, he is. He's still in us. We still represent him. He represents us, so what we do matters. So it doesn't really, the fact that he's untouched by our sin doesn't degrade our responsibility because we still have an association, he with us, us with him, and we need to protect that. We are his image makers or imagers. We've made in his image. We are his image bearers, I should say. More than that, we're not really image bearers anymore. That was something that we had with Adam. We're now 
bearers of Christ. We're image bearers at a whole other level because we bear the image of Christ now as his people. That's higher than what Adam had, way higher. All sex outside of marriage is sin, but when it is committed by believers, it is especially reprehensible because it profanes Jesus Christ with whom the believer is one. That's it. That's the bottom line. See, I think what happened with the Gnostics is they, they figured out this distinction and ran with it so much so that sin didn't matter anymore. Because, well, God's in my soul and that doesn't, you know, that's not affected by what I do. So who cares what I do with the body? Wrong! When God saves or redeems a man, he redeems the whole man. He's bought the whole man, the whole woman. Soul, spirit, body, the whole thing belongs to him. He doesn't just purchase the soul. If that were the case, we wouldn't have a body that's going to be raised. He owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hills. The Christians on a thousand hills. That sounds silly. You get my point? It's not my point. It's the point of Scripture. So really, all Paul is driving at is he's, he's, he's correcting this idea that you can use your bodies how you want, and he illustrates it with the oneness, and he gives these examples and these illustrations that are vivid and, 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 and I think kind of difficult for us to focus on and, and to talk about, but they're poignant and they're, they're contextual for these people because of the prostitution and all that stuff that they had. But really, all he's illustrating is the insignificance of these bodies. And the oneness that we create by having a sexual union with somebody who's not our spouse while being in spiritual union with Christ. This is the deterrent that we talked about earlier. What should deter us? There's a great many things, I think, that should deter us. One deterrent for me is that I'm married to a woman. If I did something like this, I'd be dead. But before that would be Christ in me. And that was the deterrent of the early Christians and Christians throughout history, and it should be for us. So he corrects them for thinking they can do whatever they want with their bodies, using them for immoral purposes. Let's move to the fourth point. Number four, Paul commands them to escape sexual sin now, verse 18. What does he say? Flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say, you know what? It might be a good idea to leave that behind. He's saying, run. Run for your life. Flee from sexual immorality. And then he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The only safety in such temptation, sexual sin temptations, is flight. We must flee from sexual immorality, run for the hills when it presents itself. You know, I think Paul had, probably had Joseph in mind here. And Potiphar's wife tempted Joseph to commit adultery with her. Man, I'll tell you what, that dude, they didn't even have turbos back then, like a turbo camel or donkey. This guy had a built-in turbo in him. As soon as that sin presented itself, that guy kicked in the turbo and bolted for the door at full speed. Got out of there. He left so fast, his shirt was dangling in her hand. Because he, he left and went, because she already had a hold of him. 
she's sitting there hanging there, the shirt's hanging there in her hand, and then people come in and she blames him for something he didn't do, and he goes to jail for 11 years. Horrible, but necessary for other reasons. Providence. That's Genesis 39, verse 12. You know, there's that same sense of urgency here in our text in the command here, this flee, this run, kick in the turbo. Paul is saying when sexual immorality presents itself, because it will get out of there quickly and do not look back. What happened when Lot's wife looked back to Sodom, the epitome of sexual immorality? She was turned into a pillar of salt, Genesis 19:26. If we look back at these temptations, it's likely that we'll give in to them, get entangled, and then get wrecked like her. So it's not just enough to flee. Keep going and keep your eyes straight. Don't look back. Don't reopen the email. Don't flip back onto that channel. Get out of there. Run. But... What if a believer has already given in to this temptation and is engaging in sexual immorality? How should that brother or sister respond to it, right? Because that's a little different. You got the temptation and, oh, here's how I deal with the temptation. I flee from it. Well, what if I've already given myself over to the temptation? How do I respond to that? What should I do? Exact same thing. Flee. Run doesn't change because you've already done it or are doing it. You know, I, I want to preface what I'm going to say because I'm going to get on a soapbox a little bit here. And I don't want to be offensive to anyone. I'm going to talk about 12-step recovery and things for a moment. I want to talk about this. If it's something you've done and it's been beneficial to you, I'm not taking that away from you. I'm going to make some observations. I'm going to share a theory I have. But I want to talk about this a little bit more. I do. I want to talk about it, but I want to be sensitive, and I want to be kind, and I want to be gentle. A kinder, gentler, Pastor Phil Baker. It's not usually what I am. I'm not known for that. Ask Carla. Carla's like, let's see. I, I got an issue I need to talk about. Let's see. Phil Baker or Bruce? Bruce! <laughs> Pretty smart. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, Bruce is like, oh, sister. Oh, I ain't got time for, oh, sister. He does. I just want to talk about this, and I just want to preface it with, with I, I want to be gentle, and I, I, don't want to, I don't want to hurt anyone. But I, I really, really believe and feel in, in so many ways. I, I know feelings aren't dependable, but I believe that leads to good feelings. But I believe and I feel that, that the church has really today lost sight of these simple steps that we find in Scripture in dealing with sin. I really think it's lost sight of it. I do. It, it's now at a place, and it's not all churches, but it's a great many of them. It, it's now come to a place where it thinks that, that sexual sinners, substance abusers, anyone with a vice needs to go through a program, 12-step program or something like that, needs to enroll in something, and, and that's where they can find victory and maybe get past an addiction or get past these sorts of things. I think that's the mode. At one time, the church was very much about single steps, and now it's given itself over to these vast, big programs that are weekly that you go to, and, and, and then that's where you'll find delivery. In fact, it's sad in some ways that the church is just, that, that's just, just how we deal with sexual sinners. 
They're welcome in our main services, but they got to go over here and get involved in this. Now, I came from a church that had the largest recovery program in, in the area by far, and its default was, oh, if it sniffed out and you had, if you sniffed you out and you had some kind of issue, that's the first place they wanted you to go to. Instead of saying flee, they said ran over there and get enrolled. And I think that's a mistake. You see, the Bible does not present 12-step programs. It does, however, present a great many single-step programs, like flee, like repent. We see that throughout Scripture. Probably one of my favorites is still, still one step, Colossians 3, 5, where it says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death. In other words, why do you give you the simple translation? Kill it! That's one step. Kill it. In fact, I, I found this, and I knew it, but I, I thought, well, I've got to go find where this is. But Jesus, you know, man, he was cutting edge. Let me tell you. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm being sarcastic. He was cutting edge because he introduced a, an incredible two-step when dealing with sin that has virtually disappeared these days. It's called go and sin no more, John 8, 11. Two steps, go. Second step, sin no more. So, so what I've given you is examples of one step and a two-stepper, like the two-step, right? You see, in the old days, these simple biblical steps seem to work just fine. But the church now thinks that it has a better way and a, a, a best way to go rather than these single steps, you know, because uh, people that are entangled in these things, they can't just repent and, and go away from it. They can't just stop doing this. And, you know, there needs to be a process for them. And, and I understand the thinking behind that. And sometimes there's some truth to that, but it's a default mode now. The best way to go is just to send people to multi-step programs with weekly meetings, workbooks, and an army of accountability partners who are on standby to call you at any time. It's 2 a.m. What are you doing? I'm sleeping. Good. That's better than drinking. Good night. I love you. <laughs> That's what they do. But over the years, just being aware, watching and listening, witnessing, I've noticed there's just a slew of problems with some of these step programs. Just a lot of problems with them. Number, firstly, would be that they rarely, if ever, even present the gospel. You can go to one of these programs and never even hear about the finished work of Jesus for six months. I don't even understand what the point of that is. The focus in these programs, even if Christ is mentioned or what he did on the cross is mentioned, so often the focus is not on what he did, but what you're doing about your sin. That's the focus. That's not empowering. That's depressing. For me to focus on what is entangled me is a wrong focus, and it's depressing because I realize the futility of my power and strength to get myself out of it. I can't deliver myself. It's not empowering. It's depressing. They talk about steps instead of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. This might be one that frustrates me the most. 
Francis Chan has gotten weird over the years, but years ago, before he started getting weird, he wrote a book called The Forgotten God, and it was all about the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah! Somebody had to say it, because we have forgotten what the Holy Spirit does. We have forgotten who he is, what he does, and what he can do. He is God. He wields omnipotent power, and we have forgotten this. In many ways, these programs have been developed to replace him. We don't rely on him. We rely on man-made programs, man-made steps. Well, I threw a verse in there, so it's biblical. No, that doesn't make it biblical. We have forgotten the Holy Spirit. It's about steps, not about his power, not about his presence. Do step one, two, and three. Wait, come back to two because you blew step three. This is tedious and exhausting. Another thing that I've noticed, another observation, is that very few people leave these programs. Why? Some people stay in them the rest of their life. They stay in them, repeating the steps over and over for months, years, and even decades because they can't get past the sins that so easily beset them or because they are terrified to leave because they think they'll relapse. See, my stepdad, he's, he's been dead for years now, and he was a big drinker, destructive drinker, not just a... You know, like a, a friendly, happy, your friendly neighborhood happy drunk. He was a mean drunk, a bad drunk, and destroyed his previous marriage before he married my mom and wrecked his family and everything else. And, and he got involved in AA, and he literally believed that, man, if he left AA, he would relapse real quick. So what he did was he exchanged one addiction for another. He got rid of the booze and took on Alcoholics Anonymous. So bad there that they make you identify yourself as your addiction. And to hear of Christians being in there, identifying themselves as something other than a Christian is heart-wrenching. They teach those people that you are an alcoholic and then they make you feel as if you, you can never leave that program because if you do, you'll be destroyed. That doesn't sound like help to me. That sounds like it came right out of that pit of hell. Okay, I, I want to be sensitive, but I'm, I, the reason why I will get passionate and say things like that is because it makes me mad because I don't think it's helping. I think it is a different kind of imprisonment. I once told my mom, I said, Mom, and this is when he was still alive, and I probably shouldn't have been talking about him, but he was talking about, I can't leave, because if I leave, I'm done. I'll just, I'll go back to it, you know? And I, I told my mom, I said, Mom, this is what he says. He says that, you know, I mean, didn't he, Mom, in a way, just kind of get rid of one addiction for another? And not to mention, he drank coffee all day and smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. You're exchanging one addiction for another. But I, I questioned my mom on this, and my mom said, you know what, I'm perfectly fine with it as long as he's not drinking. 
That's not victory. That's exchange. She was just happy that he wasn't drinking. And I understood what she was saying. I also found that the recidivism rate among step program folks is incredibly high. Many who actually leave these programs do eventually fall off the wagon and return like repeat offenders return to prison. They end up being disconnected from the program for a little while, maybe not checking in with an accountability partner, hit the bar, have a crazy night, feel like their life just ended again, end up back in the program for another three years. It's so sad. And, and I, I'm really, as a student of God's word for going on 20 years now, I've been studying the word like the way I do today. I've been studying it like this since the second I got saved. I'd be like, Rachel, look at this word right here. It's the word the. She'd be like, it's just the word the. I know, but it's profound because it's in the Bible. I have been studying the word like a maniac for almost 20 years. And what I am now becoming more and more convinced of after studying the word and, 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 and studying even the people of the Bible and looking at their lives and looking at salvation and conversion and these things, you know, after all this research and study, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the reason why there's so many folks in churches, in the visible church, right? That's what we can see. So many folks in the visible church that are entangled in sexual sin, entangled in substance abuse, entangled in a, a thousand other vices. I, I'm now becoming more and more convinced that the reason why is because they're not saved and don't have the Holy Spirit. That's why. The Bible literally shows converted people repenting and turning away from their sin. That is the pattern of Scripture. Now, you do have the pattern of Israel. <laughs> it's just a contradiction of that. But when you see a real person grabbed a hold of by the Holy Spirit, they are never the same. Zacchaeus, Danny DeVito. That's what he looks like. Just think, of, just think for a moment here of people in Scripture that change direction through conversion or through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? And not with the aid of step programs. Nebuchadnezzar, the guy was mowing lawns for seven years with his teeth. And then wrote, when he repented, when the Spirit got a hold of him, wrote one of the most lustrous and beautiful passages on the sovereignty of God you'll ever read. Unbelievers don't write those things. How about the people of Nineveh? Hmm. How about David? Yeah, we'll admit he was all over the place, but nobody's ever written a psalm like 51 when he repented. Zacchaeus, of course, the thief on the cross, didn't have much time to prove anything, but all he had to say was one sentence, and I knew he was a different man. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, those two guys were Pharisees, members of the Sanhedrin, the most evil religious establishment of that day, completely transformed, found defending Jesus and even burying Jesus. Barnabas, 
pretty wicked sinner at one point. We see him in Acts 2, I think, the latter part, selling all his property, giving it to the church so that the church could meet the needs of widows and orphans and everything else. The man was changed in a second. One of the most vivid examples is Saul traveling to Damascus to incarcerate Christians and has a saving encounter with Christ in glory. No one. Uh, you, who has changed more than that? The Philippian jailer, the people of Ephesus, not two or three of them, pretty much the whole town heard the gospel. Obviously, something happened there because they turned right around and burned all their sorcery books. Wow. You see, the list goes on and on and on, and it proves my point, and that is that with conversion comes a literal change of direction, real repentance. The Bible is filled with examples. Violators of sexual sin become victors over sexual sin. They conquer it and leave it behind. Now, I am not denying that genuine spirit, Christ-indwelt believers can get stuck in sins. I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm not saying that there are times when brothers and sisters get entangled and need unique care, need further instruction, need pastoral counsel, need these things. I'm not denying any of that. I'm not even denying the, um, the, the positive existence of a good recovery program that just shoves Jesus down their throats. Hallelujah. I'm just saying I'm just putting forth my, my, my observation that maybe the reason why there's so much sin and step program, there's so much sin and so many step programs, programs in churches today, why this is a pervasive thing, could it be that the reason why is because the churches have become filled with unregenerate, unbelieving, unrepentant people? And you say, well, how could that be their churches? Well, a great many churches have stopped preaching the gospel. That's how it happens. You'll never hear the gospel preached at Joel Osteen's church. And I guarantee it's full of sexual sinners, and nobody will say it. Faith comes by. You don't have the word. You don't hear the word. That's, that's with the Holy Spirit. That's where he brings faith and, and, and conviction and conversion and sanctification. And, and if that's what we minimize and cast out, especially the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, when we remove that, we end up with churches that are filled with tares, filled with goats in need of programs to help them get past addictions and these sorts of things. Things like flee don't work on unbelievers. Things like repentance don't work on unbelievers. Things like go and sin no more, that doesn't work on unbelievers. Put to death, good luck. An unbeliever ain't going to put anything to death. You understand what I'm saying? 
I'm not trying to disparage the church by saying it's just filled with unbelievers, but I think there's a lot of churches that have a lot of unbelievers and there's a lot of rampant sin. I, I think sin is more rampant in the church today than it ever has been. Invisible churches at least. And maybe the reason why is because churches are filled with goats now because we have abandoned the gospel, the message that saves. And we got to deal with all of the sexual sin somehow so we create ministries for it. Recovery. You know, the idea that you can just have all of this immorality and substance abuse and all these things within the body, it's just, it's just not a biblical reality because I just illustrated for you how God changes people. But if, if, if you don't understand the power of the gospel, if you don't understand the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and, and this is not your message to a dying people, they're never going to die to their sin. Never. And you will need all this mechanism. Because if you don't have something in place to try to curb it, it will take over and inevitably, ultimately destroy your church. You know, this, this is what happens when preachers either water down or abandon the gospel. There's no spirit, no power, no deliverance, no salvation. But these folks who are entangled, they have to do something because they are expected to change. They are being pressured by their spouses, by their significant others, by their loved ones, by their friends, neighbors, employers. Maybe they're even being pressured by the justice system, which is saying enroll in AA or go back to prison. There's a lot of pressure on these people to perform against the things that they cannot get victory over because they have not the gospel and have not the Holy Spirit and the power of God in them. But they got to do something. And so they enroll and they go and they attend. Step programs are meant to equip people, but how can they truly equip people if they leave out the gospel of Jesus Christ, leave out the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Without this divine combination, these programs are going to be nothing more than social clubs uh, where people can show up every week and safely talk about their sins, but never be truly delivered and set free from these things. It almost becomes like Catholic confession. It's just a Protestant version. You know, I, you're not allowed to talk about others' sins and stuff like that when you attend it. First of all, when you go to these things and you sit there and listen to people confessing their sins, you can't speak up. It's called no crosstalk. So there's no iron sharpening iron there. There's a strike four. But you have to sit there and listen to the people unpack these grievous sins. I remember one time a guy in particular was talking about he had a real, he was married, had a family. He was talking about, prost he kept getting prostitutes. And he'd come back every week and talk about how he was with a new... Pro I'm, I'm just like, I wanted to yell, repent! But everyone in there was saying, you know, Fred, that's a make-up name. We're so glad you're here. And he would just, every week, he would confess a new sexual exploit with some prostitute on his route. And I'm sitting here thinking, I didn't want to hurt the guy, but I felt like they were hurting him. Because it was a safe place for him to confess that and then just to go back to business as usual. Oh, man. 
people stay in these programs are never truly set free and the programs are supposed to set them free. They can't set them free. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16, if there's no gospel there, there's no power unto salvation. The primary aim of the gospel is to save sinners from divine wrath and justice. That's the first point of it. But it can also save saints from the encumbrances and sins which so in easily entangle us and keep us from running the race set before us at full speed. Hebrews 12.1. The gospel has the power to save the soul and to rescue the saint from dope, from sexual sin in a second. Now, we don't believe that. You go over there on Wednesday. Oh, okay. You see why it bothers me? Listen, if a man or woman, if they are converted by God, let's say a man, if a man is converted by God, he has the Holy Spirit in him. He has divine omnipotent power in him at his disposal. He can, all caps, can repent and walk away from any sin. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, substance abuse, gone right then. If you don't believe that, you don't know the Holy Spirit. If you think that we need, need man-made stuff to get us through stuff, you don't know or understand the Holy Spirit. You don't. You don't get him. You don't understand his capability. If God could raise a person from dead, from death, how could he not raise you up out of your thing? I mean, come on. What are we doing here? Am I wasting my time? If I don't believe this, I got no business being up here, ever. He can repent and walk away from any sin. I mean, Paul said to the Corinthians not long ago, as some of you were, some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were fornicators. Some of you were angry people. Some of you were swindlers. You were. Why were they? Because that's what they were before they had an encounter with the Holy Spirit who changed them in the inkling, or twinkling of an eye. Mm. It is the presence power of God that enables the sinner, even the saint, to flee sexual immorality, to repent of substances, to put to death anger and malice, whatever it is, and to go and sin no more. Which doesn't mean to never sin again, but it means to stop repeating the same sin. For the lady that was thrown at Jesus' feet, it was the sin of adultery. I guarantee she never committed adultery again after that encounter. Why? Because the Lord forgave her. What does it mean in our system when someone is forgiven by God? They are saved. That woman was saved, which means she was totally capable of walking away from adultery for good. And I bet she did. You see, Paul did not command the Corinthians to do the impossible here. 
He expects them to escape sexual sin as soon as they read the letter. Why? Because he knows they can. He's not telling them to do something they can't do. There's an expectation in his words. When I say flee, I mean it. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. He expects them to do it, and he knows they can. Why? Because they are believers. Because they had the mighty gospel. Because they had the omnipotent power of God in them. They had God in them, the Holy Spirit, Christ in me. He knows they can do it because of that. We have lost sight of flee, repent, put to death, and go and sin no more. We've traded those and exchanged those simple commands, simple steps for a multitude of steps that in the end usually don't have any power to actually deliver. And this, everything that I've been saying probably has nothing to do with what Paul is saying. <laughs> but I have been waiting for years to be able to talk about what I have observed with these ministries that have been created. Man, if you came through a ministry like that and you heard the gospel there and you found deliverance there, praise God. I'm not going to take that from you. I'm not a Billy Graham fan or a crusade fan, but I know of a brother in this room who was saved at a crusade there. I'm not going to try to take that away from him. I couldn't take his salvation if I had all the power in the world. How would I, why would I want to minimize or diminish what God did there for him? And by the way, Billy Graham was a pretty darn good preacher. Preach sin. Preach the Holy Spirit. Preach the gospel. There's just things I don't care about in his preaching. But he did, he did what he was supposed to do in many regards. You come through a ministry like that, or if AA has somehow helped you through that higher power, praise the Lord. I'm not trying to take that from you. I'm just trying to bring us back to the Scripture. That's all I care about. That's my job. Let's not minimize and downplay the power of God, that we can flee, that we can stop. Years ago, a friend of mine was hired into pastoral ministry before I was in pastoral ministry. And I wanted to be in pastoral ministry. And he had just been hired into it. So I said, what was your interview process look like so I know what it will look like in the future? Maybe if I move in that direction, you know, they'll ask me some of the same questions. And he said, oh, it was mind-blowing. One of the questions they asked was the last time that I had looked at pornography and, you know, did stuff that goes with that. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. They asked you that? And he said, yes. Why? Why was I so concerned about that? Because I was guilty of it. And I said, oh, man, if they'd interviewed me today, I would have had to either lie or tell the truth. And if I'd have lied, I would have lied before the Lord. And I know what happened to that guy named Anna and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira. I was very young in the faith. I, I didn't know. The, what, I had gender confusion then. <laughs> but I know what happened if you lie. But if, if I tell the truth, then they're going to tell me, you know, uh, shake, they're going to shake the dust off their feet and leave me there because I'm not qualified to do anything if I'm engaging in sexual immorality, what should I do? I said, what should I do, bro? He goes, stop. And I never did it again. That was it. We have lost sight of the fact that in the Holy Spirit, we can stop. And now we use terms like addiction as an excuse to keep it going. Are there real addictions? Yeah. 
sexual immorality can reconfigure your mind in a way, the chemistry in your mind. Sexual sin can do that. Paul's going to talk about that. Chemical abuse, substance abuse can do that. It can have a long-term lasting effect. But that doesn't mean, that does not diminish the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't even make a higher challenge for him. <laughs> Notice, we're moving on. Thank you for enduring that. I, I hope you're not mad at me. I hope you're not. I hope I haven't defeated you because you believe in that stuff. That's fine. If you found victory there, praise God. I support you. If I had my way, I would try to take everyone back to the scripture and the simple steps and a reliance on the Holy Spirit. But I'm not God. Notice what Paul says in the second half of verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is interesting. I believe Paul is saying that although sexual sin is not necessarily the worst sin, it is the most unique in its character. It rises from within the body bent on personal gratification. It drives like no other impulse, and when fulfilled, it affects the body like no other sin. It has a way of internally destroying a person that no other sin has. Because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two persons, its misuse corrupts on the deepest human level. I think that's what he's getting at here. Schreiner wrote, sexual sin, because of the profound psychophysical union formed with another person, particularly affects human beings, shaping them in profound ways. I believe that to be true. But it doesn't change Paul's approach to it. A simple command to escape it now. Urgency, like with Joseph. Get out of there. Because it profanes Christ. That's the biggest reason, because it profanes Christ. But second to that because it has a profound effect on their bodies or on our bodies inside and out. Sexual sin destroys people mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even physiologically. The most documented STD of antiquity was and is herpes. Since people had no antiviral drugs back then, diseases like it progressed very rapidly and absolutely annihilated the people that had it. Now we don't need to get into today's more notable STDs to further illustrate the physiological impact of sexual sin. We get the point. Sexual sin destroys the body. We understand this probably better than the Corinthians ever did because we have more research, more proof. But I don't want to get into that. It's just a fact, and it's something that Paul is kind of alluding to. Now let's move to our fifth and final point. Paul challenges them to live as blood-bought holy temples, verses 19 and 20. He says, or do you not know that your body, first he said, do you not know that you're a member of Christ? Now he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Last verse, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. Ah. This is yet another reminder, and this one is twofold. First, in verse 19a, Paul reminds them about their bodies. Their bodies were not just bodies, but temples of the Holy Spirit. 
In the Old Testament, the temple was in Jerusalem, signifying the place where the Lord specially dwelt with his people. The holiness of the temple was significant, uh, was signified by, many, uh, by the many compartments one had to pass through before entering the most holy place. Indeed, only the high priest could enter the most holy place where the Lord dwelt, and such, uh, and such entrance was limited to one day a year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Special care had to be taken not to defile or stain that which was holy. Now, God's holy presence is no longer limited to the temple, for he indwells the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 even, even indwells the bodies of individual believers, us, the Corinthians. And since every place where God dwells is holy, believers must be careful not to defile God's temple, that is, their bodies, with things like sexual sin. So that's the first reminder. Second, we see it in 19b and 20, the last verse. Paul reminds them of their position. You are not your own. In other words, they did not belong to themselves, meaning they did not possess autonomy to do whatever they wanted and most certainly to never abuse the Christian freedom they enjoyed. These people and all believers belong to God. Paul says you were bought at a price. Who bought them? God bought them. At what price? The blood of bulls? No. The blood of bulls can never cover the cost of our redemption. Hebrews 10.4. Our nearly innumerable sins required much more than the blood of millions and billions or even trillions of bulls. There's just not enough monetary value in the blood of animals to pay for the entirety of the redemption that we, that we need. Our sins are too vast. They're not innumerable because there is a limit on how many sins there are in all of humanity. There's a number and God knows exactly what it is. But it is a number that exceeds the value of anything else in creation. The blood of bulls couldn't do it. And that's the exact point of Hebrews 10. You know, Hebrews is a book about why Christ is superior to all, to angels and everything else. Even to the blood of bulls, he's superior. And that's where Paul is headed here. The cost was so high, the cost of our redemption was so high that only God could cover it. And this is why he sent his son into the world to obey the whole law, to die a bloody atoning death on the cross, to be buried in a tomb, to rise from the dead on the third day. This we call the work of redemption, planned from eternity past. The precious priceless blood that Jesus shed at Calvary is the currency God paid and used to redeem us. Believers have been bought and paid for in full with the blood of the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. Amen. The entire believer is redeemed by God. Soul, spirit, and body. It might be the soul, and it is, it is the soul that God indwells, but he still owns the whole person. And he sees the whole person as a blood-bought holy temple, and he expects the whole person to glorify him, especially in and through and with their bodies. And the final challenge in verse 20 
to glorify God in your body is a positive complement to the warning in verse 18 to flee from sexual immorality. When combined, Paul is saying, glorify God in your body by fleeing from sexual immorality. That's the way you ought to read that. The logic here makes total sense. Paul's logic is always sound because it came right from God. When a believer, listen to me carefully as I close, when a believer commits sexual immorality, God is not glorified in that believer's body because that believer is defiling his temple. You know what the punishment for that was? Under the old covenant, if you defiled the actual temple in Jerusalem, it was death. Let me repeat this. When a believer commits sexual immorality, God is not being glorified in their body, which is the purpose. He is not, the purpose is not being met. He is not being glorified in their body because his temple, because he indwells us, our soul is his temple. It is being defiled. But when a believer flees from sexual immorality, God is glorified in their body because they have to keep his temple holy and pure. Mm. When we, as God's people, as believers, as Christians, as the church, as the body of Christ, as members of Christ, when we sacrifice the desires and deeds of our flesh to keep these bodies pure for our Lord, we are living as a blood-bought holy temple, and it is also spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1. That's what it means to live as a living sacrifice. And this, my friends, my family, my beloved, is what believers are being challenged to do here in this text, all believers. And since we have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in us, it is something we, all caps, can do. Not perfectly, but patterned. One more quote from J. Mac. Christians, Christians' bodies are God's temple, and a temple is for worship. Our bodies, therefore, have one supreme purpose, to glorify God. Worship. That's it.